This is Cultured Hollywood for Smart People for Monday, May 11th, 2020. I am Nico, and I am your host. And we are talking movies, television, music, and so much more in a way that smart people can enjoy them. Welcome back. It's been a while. It's been a while since I did a cultured podcast. Sorry. (laughs) Didn't mean to take you back to 2004 with that journey through the history of adult alternative radio. (laughs) It's no longer 2004. It's 2020. That is the moment we are living in. A crucial moment in the history of mankind, I would say. Or maybe it's just a blip on the radar. Who the hell knows? You won't know until 20 years from now when you're looking back. Huh, wonder what happened in 2020. Your grandkids will ask you and we'll be like, uh, I don't know. We went for a lot of jogs through the park and uh, watched a Michael Jordan documentary. And that's basically it, man. <laughs> Look, it's a global pandemic and I know you're struggling much like myself and much like everyone else in my life. I don't know anybody that's like cool with this right now. I mean, some people are taking it easier than others, but I don't think anyone in the world prefers this version of reality. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. Maybe that person exists. But I assume if you're listening to this podcast that your life is less than ideal. So I'm going to do my best to get you through an hour of your day and entertain you with ramblings about bullshit. Nothing important, nothing relevant, nothing crucial. No information that you must have in order to survive. Just, you know, Hollywood, the business of show. That's what we're talking about today. And boy, oh boy, is there a lot to get to. So let's just get started right now with uh, some sad news. Some news that broke this morning on The Wire. Jerry Stiller, famed comic actor, father of Ben Stiller, half of the comedy duo Stiller and Mira from the 60s, dead at the age of 92. If you don't know the name Jerry Stiller, I'm sure you know him as Frank Costanza from Seinfeld. That is perhaps his most iconic role and what he will be most remembered by. Dead at the age of 92. That's a long life. It's a good life. It's a prosperous life. A death at the age of 92 by natural causes is hardly a tragedy. Nevertheless, it is a very sad day. For Nico DiGregorio, the Seinfeld fan. Um, man, Jerry Stiller, Frank Costanza, I think my favorite character on Seinfeld, one of my favorite characters in the history of television. And it's almost unfair to reduce Jerry Stiller's career to just that one character. He kind of came onto Seinfeld late. I think season five was his first appearance. So there were four whole seasons of Seinfeld before Frank even made a cameo. He actually met George's mother before you met his father. I think Estelle Costanza showed up season four and then Frank showed up a whole season later. And I don't think he was in that many episodes, probably 20 to 25 at the most. Um, But he made the most of that screen time and, you know, had a great career outside of Seinfeld before Seinfeld even hit the airwaves. uh, Frank Costanza was already a comedy icon. His work with his wife and Mira 
uh, in Stiller and Mira is uh, is just legendary. Go on YouTube, look up some of those Stiller and Mira clips. They were often on the Ed Sullivan show together. Just a great sketch comic. Um, and, you know, it, it was uh, such an awesome thing to see a married couple uh, doing sketch comedy together. You just don't see that anymore. I guess back in the day, it was a lot more common. You had Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. You had Stiller and Mira. Who is the equivalent in 2020? Can you think of any like celebrity power couple or like comic power couple to comic actors that work together? Like who would it be? I guess Nick Offerman and his wife. They do like direct TV commercials, I guess. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Will, Will Arnett, Amy Poehler. I mean, they're both comic actors, but they don't really work together. They're not a duo. You don't say Arnett and Polar. Ted Danson and Mary Steenbergen? Who is it? Who is the Stiller and Mira of 2020? I don't think there is one. (laughs) John Legend and Chrissy Teigen? Um, it's uh, It's just a great career. Jerry Stiller had an unbelievable career. I did want to talk a second about his work on Seinfeld, though, because um, I I truly don't think there is another television character quite like Frank Costanza. And it's not because of how the character is written. There are plenty of like quirky television fathers that have been written over the years, and some of them are quite humorous. But that character is all in Stiller's performance because Stiller does this thing (laughs) where the volume is always at 11. He is always screaming at you. Every scene is overacted. Every scene is over the top. And I have never seen such a commitment since Nicolas Cage and Vampire's Kiss. I have never seen an actor just go for it consistently. Every word on the page is screamed at the top of his lungs. There is no restraint. There is no nuance. There is no second layer to Frank Costanza. He is who he is and who he is is obnoxious. And like, I got to imagine when Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld were dreaming up this character, they didn't have that energy in mind. I'm sure they wrote him as a bit quirky and a bit eccentric and emotional and loud but there's no way they envision Jerry Stiller would play it in this way. Every single word <laughs> screamed at the top of his lungs. Not just the serenity now. Serenity now. Not just that. But when he's sitting at the dinner table, go watch this scene on YouTube. I just tweeted it out today. Watch the scene on YouTube where uh, it's Frank and George at the dinner table And Frank got George an interview with a bra salesman. (laughs) And Jerry, uh, I'm sorry, Jerry Stiller. Uh, Frank is explaining to George uh, the essentials of the bra, how the bra works. The A, the B, the C, and the D. (laughs) That's the biggest. (laughs) Watch that scene. No other comic actor would play it in quite that way. No comic actor would have the balls to go that broad. I mean, think about it. We kill most actors. I think the most common criticism of any actor is that 
they go too over the top. We've been killing Al Pacino for this for 40 years. Ever since he made Scarface, he's too over the top in Devil's Advocate. He's too over the top in Dick Tracy. He's too over the top in Heat. She's got a great ass, right? We've been destroying Al Pacino for overacting ever since he made Scarface. Jerry Stiller does the exact same thing in every scene of Seinfeld, even though the script doesn't call for it. Yet, he brings this energy that is, first of all, so likable, also hilarious, but also incredibly real. And that's what's so amazing about it. Like, I don't know a ton of people like Frank Costanza, but I know a few people like Frank Costanza. I know a few people that every conversation I've ever gotten into with the person has consisted of them yelling at me. You know, (laughs) there are some people I have never heard their speaking voice in my life. That's Frank Costanza. I have an uncle exactly like Frank Costanza, right? And you may not know someone like him, but I do. And if you watch Seinfeld, I'm sure Frank Costanza felt incredibly real to you. Um, Never have I seen an actor go so broad, but feel so down to earth. Um, And I'm just going to spend all day today watching old uh, Frank Costanza clips on YouTube uh, because that is just a a once in a generation character. A minor character came on season five is surrounded by some of the great comic actors in the history of television. Julia Louis-Dreyfus is in scenes with him. Jason Alexander is in scenes with him. Michael Richards is in scenes with him. Yet somehow he steals every single moment of that show. Uh, he will certainly be missed. Rest in peace, Jerry Stiller. I don't mean to ta- uh, to start the show dwelling on death, but there were a number of significant deaths. So let's actually talk about a few more of them. Little Richard is also dead. Little Richard, the causes are unknown, but Little Richard is dead at the age of 87. The king and queen of rock and roll, as he often referred to himself. Um just like an incredibly important figure, an incredibly important figure. And I think late in his life, he sort of became a caricature of himself. He made talk show appearances and he was on game shows. And I think that's what I knew him as. I knew him as like, you know, a panelist on the match game, or I knew him as a a judge on a, a, on a, on a rejected singing show. And, I didn't think of little Richard as an important American musician. I just saw him as a guy wearing lots of makeup, bedazzled outfits, pencil thin mustache. That was little Richard to me. It wasn't until later on in my life when I started reading about the history of rock and roll that this guy is it, man. This is the architect of rock and roll. We do not have rock music without little Richard. And it's kind of funny. Now little Richard is dead and the genre of rock and roll is basically dead. Uh, So he was there for all of it, every step of the way. You read this in the New York Times uh, obituary that came out on Saturday. I did not realize this until I read the obituary. Uh, Bob Dylan wrote in his high school yearbook that his ambition was to, quote, join Little Richard. That's all he wanted to be. Later on on Twitter, uh, Dylan sort of extrapolated what he meant when he said that. And here was the tweet. quote, I just heard the news about little Richard and I'm so grieved. He was my shining star and guiding light back to when I was only a little boy. His was the original spirit that moved me to do everything I would do. 
I played some shows with him in Europe in the early 90s and got to hang out with him in his dressing room a lot. He was always generous, kind, and humble, and still dynamite as a performer and a musician, as you could still learn plenty from him. In his presence, he was always the same little Richard that I first heard and was awed by growing up, and I always was the same little boy. Of course, he'll live forever, but it's like a part of your life is gone. The Beatles, the greatest rock band of all time, owe a tremendous debt to little Richard. Paul McCartney will be the first to tell you that. Paul McCartney wrote this on Twitter this week. From Tutti Frutti to Long Tall Sally, which evidently was the first song that Paul McCartney ever sang in public, to Good Golly Miss Molly to Lucille, little Richard came screaming into my life when I was a teenager. I owe a lot of what I do to little Richard and his style, and he knew it. He would say, quote, I taught Paul everything he knows. I had to admit he was right. In the early days of the Beatles, we played with Richard in Hamburg and got to know him. He would let us hang out in his dressing room, and we were witness to his pre-show rituals with his head under a towel over a bowl of steaming hot water. He would suddenly lift his head up to the mirror and say, quote, I can't help it because I'm so beautiful. And he was a great man with a lovely sense of humor and someone who will be missed by the rock and roll community and many more. I thank him for all he taught me and the kindness he showed by letting me be his friend. Goodbye, Richard, and a wop baba doo bop a wop bamboo Paul McCartney. Uh, James Brown, a direct descendant of Little Richard. Uh, the flamboyant performance style, the infusion of gospel and soul into rock and roll records. Um, he was indeed the architect of the genre. He is the king and queen of the genre. And by the way, this is not to be understated. Did a lot for Prince. Did a lot for David Bowie, the Ziggy Stardust thing, the sort of ambisexual, gender fluid stuff. Uh, Little Richard was dangerous. Little Richard was groundbreaking. Little Richard was uh, was bold and sexual and gay, um, and uh, and just a contradiction in every way. And uh, that is important. It's important for rock and roll. That's important to uh, to being a rock star. It's one of the reasons that. Like there are no rock stars anymore, not just because the genre is dead, but because the idea of the rock star is dead. Uh, We don't have anyone with, I guess, maybe the exception of Kanye West, who is willing to go there, who's willing to offend, who's willing to push the boundaries, who's willing to be different, uh, who's willing to provoke. Um, You know, there's nobody like that anymore. Little Richard was the first in many ways. So it is not to be understated. This is one of the greats. This is one of the five most important musicians in the history of this country, perhaps in the history of the world. Uh, and he will also greatly be missed, even though he wasn't exactly musically active in the late stages of his life. Um, an important figure and uh, rest in peace to little Richard. And finally, I, I did want to say uh, rest in peace to Roy Horn, half of Siegfried and Roy, the Vegas magic duo. I think you most likely know Roy Horn not as a stage magician, but as uh, as a guy that got mauled by a tiger. And, you know, that's unfortunate. That was like a really sad story and a shocking story. And I remember when it happened, it was a huge, 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 huge deal. Um, but, I, you know, sometimes when tragedy strikes you, you are most defined by that tragedy and not the work that you did before that tragedy struck. Uh, Siegfried and Roy are, uh, you know, the most important Vegas act ever. I, and I don't think it's close, actually. Yeah, I think I think it's Siegfried and Roy. It's not Celine Dion. It's not Wayne Newton. 
Uh, it's not Britney Spears. It's Siegfried and Roy. Um, they uh, made big stage magic with animals possible. They made it mainstream. They made it accessible. They, uh, they, uh, they're magic. They're responsible for David Copperfield. They're responsible for Penn and Teller. They're responsible for Chris Angel. And now Roy is gone. Um, and uh, that is a very sad thing. I'm a big magic fan. I know most people are not big magic fans. Most people think of magic as uh, the thing you do at your children's birthday party. Uh, but the legacy of Siegfried and Roy has not been lost on me. And uh, that is, I think, the most high profile coronavirus death we've seen during the pan- pandemic so far. Uh, as far as I know, Little Richard did not die of the coronavirus, nor did Jerry Stiller. Um, but uh, Roy Horn of Siegfried and Roy is gone. And there we go. Three major deaths in show business. All three shook me in a different way. Um, but you know what? That's life. People get old and they die, but the legacy lives on forever. Wow. That's a cliche. Ew, Nico. God, I thought you were better than that. I don't come to your podcast for fucking, <laughs> for that bullshit jesus christ um hmm okay well let's take a break shall we i'm gonna try to rinse that stank off of me jesus dead but will live on forever jesus what are you a hallmark card relax nico you're doing a comedy podcast Lord Jesus. All right. We'll be right back. This is cultured. Uh, I'll try to be less cliche and corny after the break. All right. Uh, this is an awesome story. We have a good old fashioned cat fight on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. Meow. <laughs> fight, 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 fight. Here we go. In this corner, clinging on to an outdated business model. It's AMC Theaters. And in this corner, making animated movies about singing trolls, it's Universal Studios. Who will win this battle of bickering? Ding, 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 ding. Uh... This is such a great story. I don't know if you're aware of this. So, so okay. This happened like a couple weeks ago, but we have to talk about it now because it's so fascinating for so many reasons. And I, I just don't know who's winning this fight. I don't know why this fight is even happening. I don't know what either of these companies are thinking uh, by like posting caddy statements on social media and in press releases. I, I don't get it. I, I truly don't get why these two ladies can't get along, but you know, ladies are going to do what ladies are going to do. And that is pull each other's hair out. Um, here's what happened, right? A pandemic. That's what happened. <laughs> I don't know if you're aware, but like no one's going outside because, uh, people are dying out there. So yeah, movie theaters are closed because of the coronavirus, and because movie theaters are closed, movie studios had a bunch of stuff in the pipe ready for release. And now they have a decision to make either push back the release of say black widow 
and Fast and Furious 9 until after the pandemic has been resolved or proceed as scheduled and put your movies out on video on demand or on the streaming service of your choice. And some studios have reacted differently than others. Disney, for example, has remained steadfast on this. They believe the theater-going model still works for them. All Disney properties, with the exception of one called Artemis Fowl, which is coming out on Disney Plus in a few weeks, all of the Disney releases have been pushed back indefinitely. Mulan, Black Widow, uh, the Pixar movie Soul, they believe theater-going model still works for them. Other studios have been a little more ambitious, like the independent studio behind The Lovebirds, the Kumail Nanjiani Issa Rae comedy. Um, That movie was supposed to hit theaters in April. Instead, they sold the movie to Netflix, and now Netflix will be releasing it in late May. I'm sure they're very happy with that deal. Um, Not a major studio that sold that movie. I think Paramount might have been the distributor for that, but nevertheless, it is now a Netflix production. Um, so they got creative with uh, with the financing model there. And then there's Universal Studios. Universal Pictures. Um, who, I don't want to exaggerate here. I don't want to use hyperbole, but uh, they, uh, they, they broke the fucking wheel, as Daenerys Targaryen once said. They got this cat fight going and uh, I'm pretty sure the movie going experience will never be the same because of this. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but I'm pretty sure this is the shot heard around the world. And we all knew this moment was coming. We all knew that movie theaters and on demand were going to come to blows eventually. We've been anticipating this battle for over a decade now. What we did not know is that Trolls World Tour (laughs) was the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. (laughs) We did not know that this would be the catalyst. And I'll admit, I am as shocked as the next guy that Trolls World Tour was the straw that broke the camel's back. But uh, sometimes we can't choose our martyrs, you know? (laughs) Sometimes they just choose us. Here's what happened. Universal Studios puts out Trolls World Tour. I think I talked about this on the last podcast. Uh, They get the returns back on Trolls World Tour on demand numbers. They're getting, in most cases, 20 bucks a pop for each rental. And they report uh, very good earnings, somewhere in the ballpark of $90 million. Roughly what they would have made with a theatrical release of Trolls World Tour. The difference here is that when a movie is released in a movie theater, the theater demands 50% of the revenue. Half of ticket sales go directly to the theaters. So when a studio is looking at the box office returns of one of their movies, they want to make at least double what they spent on it. Because again, the theaters take half, the studio gets the other half. That's how revenue sharing works. It's a very expensive model. With on-demand viewing, whether it be through your cable provider or through iTunes or some other third-party rental service, in most cases, the platform takes only 10% of the revenue. The studio gets to keep the other 90. 
So even if Trolls World Tour would have made more in movie theaters, which I doubt, they still generated a lot more profit for themselves by sticking to an at-home rental. 90% of the revenue versus 50% of the revenue. And I would argue because we're all stuck at home and parents are homeschooling their children who are fucking bored out of their minds, Trolls got the corona bump. And I think more people checked out that movie because it was a new movie released during a pandemic than if it were just another children's movie released in theaters. That's my theory. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But either way, Universal scored a big victory with Trolls World Tour. Go figure. They then uh, release uh, a statement saying, you know, that uh, Trolls World Tour was incredibly successful and we uh, do not plan on stopping the uh, on-demand releases anytime soon. Coming next month is the Judd Apatow comedy, The King of Staten Island, starring Pete Davidson. As a matter of fact, here's a trailer for you to enjoy. On-demand, go figure. AMC theaters, along with other movie theaters, do not take kindly to this victory parade. And uh, they release an incredibly catty statement. And man, I, I just I just saw the claws coming out as I read this. Like It's like I'm watching one of those Real Housewives shows and, and the woman just took out her weave. That's what I was envisioning as I read this statement from Adam Aaron, the president of... <laughs> of AMC Entertainment. Quote, this radical change by Universal to the business model that currently exists between our two companies represents nothing but downside for us and is categorically unacceptable to AMC Entertainment. Accordingly, we want to be absolutely clear so that there is no ambiguity of any kind. AMC believes that with this proposed action to go to the home and theaters simultaneously, Universal is breaking the business model and dealings between our two companies. And he continued to say that AMC will no longer release a universal production for the foreseeable future. Yeah. So that new Fast and Furious movie that's supposed to be coming out next year, AMC apparently wants no part of that. Okay. Okay, Adam Aaron. (laughs) You know... I want to believe that Adam Aaron is well equipped to handle himself in this cockfight. You know, (laughs) I want to believe that he's not just puffing out his feathers and making a big stink, uh, but that he actually has the goods. I just don't believe that Adam Scott is well equipped and you could take that dig as you will. (laughs) But, uh, the man is not exactly exuding BDE, if you know what I'm saying. This is insane to me. So uh, Universal hits back. Our desire has always been to effectively deliver entertainment to as wide an audience as possible. We absolutely believe in the theatrical experience and have made no statement to the contrary. Well, I mean, you kind of did, but that's neither here nor there. Let's get back to Adam Aaron for a second. Um... I want to talk about leverage for a second, because in the world of business, 
Leverage is a very important thing. Now, I've never taken a business class. I know nothing about business. I would never dream of starting a business. But I read in this book, The Art of the Deal, that leverage is an important thing in any business relationship. You gotta have leverage. So let's examine Adam Aaron's leverage here. Okay? Adam Aaron is the president of a company that is on the verge of bankruptcy, has laid off its entire staff, is in the process of selling its debt to avoid drowning in it, and let's be honest, has been dying a slow and painful death for the past 15 years. Let's be very clear. Let's not mince words. The movie theater experience is dying. It is hooked up to an iron lung in the ICU, and the only reason it's still alive is because the machine hasn't been unplugged yet. It's dead. It's gone. It is hanging on to its last dying breath. Grandparents know it. Babies know it. People that work at movie theaters know it. The model is outdated. And tell yourselves whatever you want about the growing box office returns, quote unquote. The only reason why box office returns go up year to year is because theaters charge an insane amount of money for tickets every year. It's the inflation that's driving up the box office returns. It's not enthusiasm, and everyone knows this. Movie theaters are destined to go the way of drive-ins. They are destined to go the way of roller skating rinks. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And that when, maybe 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now. But the business model is on a decline. Movie theaters, by the end of my lifetime, will no longer be the central spot of entertainment for a local community. They will not be a mainstay of towns and cities all across the United States. They will be a gimmicky boutique, a mom and pop business that you go to once or twice a year. They're cool to see, but they are not sustainable to the level that AMC thinks they are. Plus, you have Universal Studios, which in literally less than a month is releasing a streaming service called Peacock. In fact, if you're a subscriber to Comcast Cable, you already have access to Peacock. I, in fact, am a subscriber to Comcast, and I got to play around with Peacock just a few days ago. Wow, that sounds like a euphemism. (laughs) I had the rare opportunity to play around with my Peacock the other day. Lots of goodies in store for me. Uh, Yeah, well, there you go. I I played around with Peacock. (laughs) You, if you are not a subscriber to Comcast Cable, will be able to play around with Peacock next month. The new streaming service joins a plethora of uh, pre-existing streaming services, including Netflix, Hulu, Disney+, Plus, Apple TV, uh, HBO Max will be out by then. So we talked about the streaming wars now for a year. Universal is getting into the game at the exact wrong moment for AMC theaters. I'm not saying this is going to happen, but could you imagine if Universal said, day one of Peacock, you'll be able to stream the new Fast and Furious movie? You thought you had to wait a year? Well, now AMC has forced our hand. Subscribe to Peacock now and get Fast 9 at home for no additional charge. 
what an incredible marketing ploy that would be. I mean, talk about losing all leverage. So I'm not exactly sure what Adam Aaron has in store here. It's like, you ever play Monopoly? I play Monopoly quite a bit. I play with my friends. I I enjoy uh, pretending to be a real estate mogul for several hours on a Saturday night. That's fun for me. You ever play Monopoly and you get a Monopoly and you also have a bunch of other like uh, deeds that would help your friends get Monopolies. So let's say like I filled out the red. I got all the reds, but I also got an orange. I got a dark blue. I got a green, got a bunch of other stuff. And all my friends are coming to me like I'm, I'm Vito Corleone on the day of my daughter's wedding. And they ask me, hey, Nico, let's make a deal. And I go, fuck off. Why would I make a deal? I got a monopoly already. I don't care how many railroads you give me. I don't care how much cash you give me. I don't care how many other monopolies you think you can offer. I got the monopoly and you don't. That's called leverage. And in the game of monopoly, the last thing you want to do is give up your leverage. I can only imagine that very principle applied tenfold in the real world. Adam Aaron right now, he's got boardwalk. He's got like two railroads and he's feeling like hot shit. But what he doesn't realize is that the dude with park place and the dude with the other two railroads already's got something else cooking on the other side of the board. He's already got hotels on orange and he is rolling in the dough. Monopoly is all cooperation. It's all a friendly board game until someone gets a stronghold on some property. And that's what Adam Aaron doesn't understand. This working relationship was all well and good until a global pandemic hit and my streaming service got launched. It is indisputable. AMC theaters needs universal more than universal needs AMC theaters. They can do this on their own. In fact, one day they will be doing this on their own. And it is in Adam Aaron's best interest to acknowledge that fact and play ball. Sometimes it sucks getting your lunch eaten by the playground bully. But you've got to play ball in order to survive. You need Universal. You need movies like Fast 9. You don't need the smaller movies like The King of Staten Island. You don't necessarily need Trolls 2. But you need the big tent poles that Universal has grace, graciously pushed back so you both could, could enjoy the spoils. That's not going to be the case pretty soon. So as much as I'm enjoying this cat fight, as much as I am enjoying, uh, I think, the most significant story that is uh that has hit the streaming wars in the last year i i i don't understand what other either side is thinking here actually i do understand what universal is thinking here i understand it quite well if i'm them i say screw you to adam aaron and i just put out fast nine tomorrow that's what i would do but then again uh, maybe the head of universal studios doesn't play monopoly like i do Let's take a break. When we come back, more from the world of popular culture. Stick around. All right. I have an extra dense version of the lightning round coming at you. There were a number of stories from the past few weeks 
that I wanted to hit on, so now I will attempt to do so as briefly as I can. Let's begin with some changes to the Academy Awards. The 2021 Oscars will work a bit differently than we are accustomed to. First and foremost, the best sound editing and best sound mixing categories will become one. In 2021, you will no longer have to fill out two separate categories on your ballot. Best sound editing and best sound mixing will become best sound. I don't know why this change wasn't made 15 years ago. I don't know why these two categories exist in the first place. I, because I'm a loser, can explain to you the difference between best sound editing and best sound mixing, but I don't care to do so. (laughs) Nor do I care to celebrate sound editing and sound mixing in their own categories. Best sound is totally fine. Gets the point across. You're going to give it to a musical or a war movie every year anyway, you know? (laughs) So best sound editing, best sound mixing in a change that was long overdue will become one. And here's even a more significant change. Who knows if this will remain intact for the years to come. But this year, 2021, you no longer have to screen your movie in a movie theater in order to be eligible for an Oscar. This is huge news. Obviously, it comes in the wake of the coronavirus. The Golden Globes had already made a similar change to next year's ceremony, and the Oscars are just following their lead. According to the Academy president, next year, after the coronavirus hopefully has been resolved, the eligibility requirements will go back in play. Um... I guess we'll see. I mean, we'll see what the movie landscape looks like once the coronavirus has gone by the wayside. We will see if physical movie theaters are even in business um, come fall, winter, early 2021. Um, I mean, we'll see if AMC theaters are able to uh, reopen their doors. Who knows? Um, Obviously, this has been a debate for a number of years. If you are an Oscars nerd like myself, Um, Steven Spielberg famously, um, said last year that, uh, that, that, uh, movies that screen on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, or other streaming services should not be eligible for, uh, Oscar consideration. He thinks that a movie on Netflix is a TV movie should be considered, uh, eligible for Emmys, but movies traditionally in the Oscar sense of the word are movies that screen in theaters. Uh, so yeah, this feels like significant news. I don't know if these changes are going to remain intact. My guess would be that by 2022, the old eligibility rules will kick back in, assuming that the coronavirus pandemic doesn't get worse than it already is. It certainly feels like this is where the Academy should be going if they want to protect their relevance. But you know what? This is a running theme. On this podcast, we were just talking about it earlier with the AMC Universal debacle. When an industry is set in its ways, change is easier said than done. And in many ways, look, Netflix has already killed the theater-going business. Netflix has already killed old Hollywood. The Oscars are already a relic of a bygone era. Um, In many ways, the future is now. The future is here already. And all that we're fighting are vestiges of the old guard. Turns out the old guard doesn't die easily, Um, and (laughs) they're going to do everything they can to cling on to their old way of thinking. 
Steven Spielberg among them, even though Steven Spielberg is one of the most important, innovative directors in the history of the medium. Like even he sort of has a stick up his ass about Netflix. And I think what we were talking about the Oscars earlier this year, um, you know, it, it, Netflix only took home one Oscar that night. It was best supporting actress for Laura Dern and marriage story. And that's after Netflix had funneled hundreds of millions of dollars into Oscar campaigns this year. The Irishman alone cost $200 million um, and was expected to be a major Oscar contender, did not take home a single trophy on Oscar night. So the industry has already been pushing up against Netflix in their own way. They're going to continue to do so until, frankly, the old guard are all dead. You know, (laughs) That's what it's going to take because the Academy is a prickly bunch. Um... We'll see. I mean, I I think I think uh, the eligibility requirements should have been lifted already. Oscar movies are weird. Like uh, studios already put out their Oscar movies in limited releases in like December uh, of award season in order to like steal eligibility. So they've already been playing within loopholes. When a movie is released in, so I'll give you an example. Right, nineteen seventeen which was supposed to be the best picture front runner uh, at the Oscars this year. Parasite ends up, of course, upsetting it in the best picture category. 1917 saw a wide release in January of 2020 for the average movie moviegoer. 1917 is a 2020 movie. It is a January 2020 movie. But of course, 1917 was actually released in a limited run in New York and L.A., in December of 2019 in order to qualify for the 2019 Oscars. So critics, podcasters like myself, Oscar academics, they all think of 1917 as a 2019 movie, but that is itself a technicality. So like, does it matter? Does it matter if the Irishman screens in two movie theaters in the country for a weekend is is that really the definition of a movie to you? Like if I if I were to put out a bunch of lawn chairs and and project uh and project once upon a time in Hollywood on my house and host a screening in my backyard, does that all of a sudden make once upon a time a a big screen movie? What exactly is the difference? How you see it, how you consume it. Um I obviously think that the change should be put in place permanently. But the Oscars, you never know. <laughs> you know. Just when you think they've taken a step in the right direction, they end up taking two steps back. So um, I, I will hold off uh, uh, with calling this a significant step forward for the Academy. I just think that this is more likely than not a one-year experiment. Uh, Taika Waititi, the director of Thor Ragnarok and last year's Jojo Rabbit is directing an upcoming Star Wars movie. This was announced on May the 4th, Star Wars Day, that is. Dude, it's so weird that Star Wars has stolen May 4th. (laughs) Why is that Star Wars Day? The original Star Wars came out in like July, you know? It was like, oh, it's May the 4th. Let's remember the Star Wars movie. Like, nothing significant in the world of Star Wars or in the world of George Lucas happened on May the 4th. It's just a pun. You're celebrating a pun, nerds. 
You're dressing up in stormtrooper outfits and having lightsaber battles because of a pun. Get over yourselves. Anyway, the Disney Corporation announced on Star Wars Day that Taika Waititi is working on an upcoming Star Wars movie. Russian Dolls' Leslie Headland is going to write the script. Yeah, okay, sure. I mean, Taika Waititi, is is there any <laughs> franchise that he doesn't currently have a hand in? This man is like the busiest man in Hollywood. It's crazy, Taika. He's working on uh, a, a series for Disney+. Plus. He directed episodes of The Mandalorian. He's working on a Charlie and the Chocolate Factory animated show. He's working on Thor Ragnarok. I'm sure he's got other ideas kicking around. You know, if here's my take, right? Taika Waititi is very good at working within the studio system. Very good at working on other Disney properties. Thor Ragnarok is considered one of the better MCU installments. Um, so I have no doubt that he will play nice in the playground and that the teacher will, uh, will, will not have to put him in detention. I will say, though, that Kathleen Kennedy in the past has made a habit of hiring ambitious, sometimes comedically minded filmmakers and uh, kicking them to the fucking curb when they don't produce in the way that she sees fit. Uh, I'm thinking specifically of Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, who were kicked off solo a Star Wars story in favor of Ron Howard. So I don't think Taika Waititi is quite as, I guess difficult is not the word, but uh, independent as Lord and Miller are. And he has a history with the Disney Corporation and has done good work. I just hope that whatever this script looks like and whatever this uh, this movie ends up being, that it is Taika Waititi's vision. And I just have no reason to believe that Kathleen Kennedy will allow that, or at least I'm skeptical. I'm just skeptical. You know, I, I think in general, Kevin Feige has done a pretty good job with the Marvel Cinematic Universe of letting interesting auteur directors play in the sandbox and do their own thing within reason. Um, I mean, he has perfected this balancing act of corporate intellectual property and, uh, and artistic merit. I think relatively well, there, there have been a few bumps along the way. Kathleen Kennedy is not, uh, been as successful at this. Uh, Ryan Johnson, I think made the most ambitious of the new, era of star wars movies and he was uh you know burned at a stake because of this by the internet and not asked back to direct episode nine and then of course episode nine jj abrams just completely fucks up that ending and uh rogue one and solo i i wouldn't speak too highly of either so this happens a lot kathleen kennedy announces a director for a new star wars movie and then they start production and they end up getting kicked off the project in favor of a John Favreau or someone like that. Nothing against John Favreau, nothing against J.J. Abrams, but you fooled me once. You ain't going to fool me no more, as George W. Bush once said. <laughs> Can't fool me again. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. I, I am uh, cautiously optimistic about the Taika Waititi Star Wars movie. Same with the National Treasure reboot apparently there's a national treasure series coming to disney plus in the near future with a younger cast as well as a national treasure three presumably starring nicholas cage who has a has a <laughs> very busy schedule coming up with the upcoming tiger king miniseries 
uh, Jerry Bruckheimer just announced this National Treasure news. I've been waiting for a National Treasure 3 my entire life. And, uh, you know, again, I've waited too long. You're like, you're like the high school crush that I pursued and pursued and pursued. And then 10 years later, you come knocking at my door and I'm married with three kids. And it's like, hey, man, you had your chance. You could have got on the ground floor of this operation. <laughs> you could have invested before the IPO. And this is what you get, man. Could have had some of this. Uh, yeah, I'm no longer interested in a national treasure movie. You, you, have, uh, you have lost your window. Tom Cruise is currently working with NASA. Yes, NASA, the space administration. <laughs> national Aeronautics and Space Administration, if I remember correctly is working with NASA to film a movie in outer space. I often think of uh, of a line from my friend Adam Hall, co-host of Why Is This a Thing? and uh, in the Movie Hall of Fame. Friend of mine, movie nerd. We were discussing the previous Mission Impossible movie, Mission Impossible 6, colon, Fallout, one of my favorite action movies of all time. And uh, we were talking about all of the stunts that Tom Cruise did on the set of that movie because the man is seemingly uh, operating with a death wish. That's at least how I take it. Hanging off of helicopters and jumping between buildings and breaking his leg and continuing the scene. Adam Hall said on that podcast that uh, it's only a matter of time before Tom Cruise attempts to dodge a bullet on film. (laughs) And that's what I think when I hear that Tom Cruise is going to space. This man has the death wish. You know, it was the natural order of things I supported entirely. I don't know what the plot of this space movie would be. I don't know how much of it would be filmed on the uh, International Space Station. But of course, I am all in. All, all in. Uh, let's see. Boba Fett's coming back to the Mandalorian. Uh, enough of Star Wars. Who the fuck cares? Uh, cord cutting has taken an all-time high. This is unsurprising. More people have cut the cable cord this month than any month before it. I imagine part of the reason is because nothing is on TV, including live sports. Live sports was often thought to be the last, uh, you know, thought to be the umbilical cord, keeping us attached to traditional cable. You can't stream NFL games on the internet without paying ridiculous fees or pirating them. Same with the NBA, same with the MLB. So these exclusive licenses um, are, in my opinion, keeping cable companies afloat. And now that there are no live sports and there is, I guess, live news, but live news that you can get anywhere on the internet, uh, I I think most people, rightfully so, see no need for uh, their cable subscriptions anymore. You can just get HBO Max in a month and be able to watch the entire HBO library. And of course, Netflix is the most watched network. Uh, Even though it's not a traditional network, it is the most watched network in the world. Tiger King, the biggest show of the year. So uh, yeah, I think the no sports thing is a big deal. I uh, have been saying this since the pandemic started and there are only so many ways that I can say it. But this virus is going to uh, destroy the entertainment industry and 
a phoenix is going to rise in the ashes, but that phoenix will not look like the traditional model. Um, it's it's just going to kill movie theaters. It's just going to kill traditional cable. This is the straw that broke the camel's back. The new wave is here, and although it was always coming, the pandemic forced the issue. I, for one, have held on to my cable subscription and uh, am anxiously awaiting the return of NBA basketball and MLB baseball. But woof, I'm nervous. I don't think I don't think we're getting them anytime soon. Um, what are y'all watching? What are y'all watching these days in the midst of the pandemic? I do have some recommendations for you. I am watching the show called Normal People on Hulu. Um, it is based on a young adult novel from a few years ago of the same name. Sally Rooney is the name of the author, and I think she is not the showrunner um, of the television show, but had a had a hand in bringing her novel to the small screen. Normal People stars uh, two unknown Irish actors, and I should really pull up their names because they are both fantastic in the show. Daisy Edgar Jones and Paul Meskel, two Irish blokes. Uh, actually, one's a bloke, one's a young lass. A wee lass. Sorry. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, the first six episodes are directed by Lenny Abramson, the director of Frank and Room. It's basically a show about two Irish kids that just fuck a lot. Just a lot of sex. And it's very steamy. A lot of nudity in this show. Gets really hot and heavy and intimate. Uh, definitely not my thing. It's very, uh, very uh, unusual for me to uh, get into a show that is purely romantic. Like, I'm cool with romance as a side plot. But in general, uh, a show like this that is so focused in on these two people is a little too close for comfort for me. Not the case uh, with normal people. Just a tremendous show in every way. Um, and if you can take the steaminess, if you're in for uh, a racy exercise in Irish sex, <laughs> check out Normal People on Hulu. It's one of the best shows I've watched this year. I'm also, of course, watching the Jordan thing. Uh, I'm two episodes behind. I've heard a lot of complaints that the uh, the Jordan thing, the, uh, the the name of it, of course, The Last Dance, it's a 30 for 30 ESPN documentary, 10 part documentary about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Uh, a lot of people are complaining that it's a puff piece that Jordan had final cut final say on what made it into the documentary. And therefore it has pulled punches in moments that uh, punches should not have been pulled, including the gambling stuff, the stuff about his father getting murdered uh, several people in my life have complained about this. I think in general, look, the show is uh, not as hard hitting journalistically as I would like. I didn't expect it to be that journalistically hard hitting. I didn't expect uh, a tell all expose. I expected it to be relatively congratulatory of Michael Jordan and relatively aspirational with a few moments of uh of uh you know ugliness grittiness moral conundrums i i i i guess this is what i was expecting i don't know i'm not as bothered by it as most people i'm not sure what most people wanted out of this i think informationally there's not a ton of new information you're going to learn from this thing but it is incredibly produced it has an 
a deep bench, a deep, deep roster of talking heads, including two presidents of the United States, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, and basically everybody you uh, are interested in hearing Michael Jordan stories from. Kobe Bryant is featured. Uh, the interviews were uh, filmed before his death. Um, same with David Stern, former NBA commissioner. So I, I just think it's a really awesome exercise in nostalgia. I was not around in the 90s. Uh, I wish that I was around in the 90s to to watch uh, the Jordan era live. I, I just can only imagine what Twitter was like during the Chicago Bulls dynasty. All I know is like I'm watching this documentary every Sunday night and Twitter is more lit than the entire week. And we're in the midst of a global pandemic. Twitter goes nuts for a Michael Jordan documentary airing 20 years after the actual dynasty. Uh, So I can only imagine what they would have been saying in 1996. But yeah, I just think like it's super well made and the music is awesome. And uh, Jordan is actually a very good narrator. He's uh, for the most part, pretty honest and candid in his talking heads interviews. Um, And yeah, it's just sort of weird that 7 million people are watching a documentary every Sunday. I do have this theory. Um, You know, I was actually thinking about this because the new Fiona Apple record came out about a month ago, Fetch the Bolt Cutters, which... Um, you know, I'm not the hugest Fiona Apple fan, but I listened to it and I really enjoyed it. Uh, that record I think has earned more critical acclaim than any record I can remember over the past 10 years. And that includes like Kendrick Lamar's to pimp a butterfly, even Kanye's my beautiful dark twisted fantasy. I think this one in terms of instantaneous reactions, this thing earned more acclaim than any record I can ever remember. And that is so weird for a Fiona Apple record in 2020 to be that universally adored pitchfork, the magazine turned uh, online publication of course gives a rating on a scale of one to 10. Every time a record is released, I think this was the first 10 out of 10, perfect 10 out of 10 since 2003 could be wrong about this. I, I read that on Twitter, so I'm sure it's wrong, but long story short, uh, fetch the bolt cutters is evidently the new thriller. It's the new, uh, dark side of the moon. Um, my theory is that with sports gone with the news reduced to just one story. I mean, you flip on cable news. It is just one story, 24 hours a day. Art and culture has become the new water cooler conversation. It has become the new must see live event. There is a greater need for consensus in popular culture now than there has been in over 20 years. And the the one story that we've talked about, not only on this podcast, but in all of, uh, you know, entertainment discourse over the past decade is the fragmentation of art, the fragmentation of television. No one watched television live anymore. It's all on demand. It's all niche. Music is becoming more and more fractured. Um, Pop music um, although uh, still plays a, a major role in society is, you know, the pop acts of 2020 are just not as significant as the pop acts of 1985. And that's not because the acts are any better or worse than they were in 1985. It's just that there are more options. When you stream the music of your choice on Spotify, you are not only choosing to listen to uh, Taylor Swift. Or uh, or Ariana Grande, you are choosing between Taylor Swift, Ariana Grande, 
and Whitney Houston. You are competing against all of music history when you open up Spotify. Um, so fragmentation and uh, decentralization, these have been buzzwords often thrown around in the entertainment press. Now that the pandemic is here and there are no live sports to bring us together at the same time, same place, watch live, we are hungry for a substitute. And that Fiona Apple record completely lit up Twitter for three days. It was the only talking point um, on social media. The Michael Jordan documentary has dominated not only the ratings, but cultural conversation. There is a need for these water cooler discussions and pop culture is now filling those holes. We'll see what happens after the Michael Jordan documentary ends. What will be the next consensus television show? Tiger King, I guess, was another example of this. But we're now seeing sort of a reemergence of consensus, a reemergence of the monoculture. Uh, I hate that buzzword, but it is nonetheless true. We're seeing a reemergence of shows and music and art that we all consume at the same time together and discuss on the internet. And I, for one, think that's a really cool thing because as someone that hosts a podcast about culture, it's kind of cool when everyone's on the same page and there's something that everyone has an opinion about. Conversation is what makes art awesome. And the more that this stuff becomes fractured, it feels like uh, you know the cultural landscape is lonelier. It feels like you have less friends to compare notes with. So for now, The Last Dance, as imperfect as it may be, is, uh, is sports for me. And uh, I'm going to be sad when it ends, but we'll see what comes in its place. That's going to do it for Cultured. That's a podcast. Man, I love you so much. Follow me on Twitter at Funny Nico Tweets. Email me. Uh, what's the email? <laughs> too many thoughts media at gmail.com. Of course, too many thoughts media at gmail.com. And of course, go to the website tmt.media or too many thoughts media.com. Com. Why is this a thing? Uh, Movie Hall of Fame, F Bomb, the Fantasy Book of the Month, Nostalgia Plus, and perhaps the Two Cents Radio, all airing new episodes this week. The pandemic might have shut down the country, but this website is just getting started. I love you so very much. And I do hope you come back soon because you know what happens then. You and I, we sit down, perhaps share a warm caress, and we get cultured. See ya! See ya!